This is the Pain Information Network, 34. All right, episode 34. Hey, everybody. Um, this is question and answer. You got Hanson. And these are some questions that I've been posed uh, through paininformation.com. Please go there and start uh, sending me more, and I'll get to them. I uh, read them all. Uh, some very good questions, actually. Uh, I have enjoyed interacting back and forth. Uh, please leave a review at iTunes. It's really helpful for the show. And uh, come say hi. All right, first uh, question. What's a trigger point? Uh, well, trigger point is is a vague, nondescript term, and it uh, really doesn't mean much. People feel these little knots under their skin, and they wonder what they are, and they think there's something wrong under the skin. They feel surface anatomy. Usually surface anatomy is completely irrelevant. Well, not for varicose veins, things like that. It's, that's a whole another topic, another problem. But these little knots under the skin, sometimes you can feel them, sometimes you can't. A lot of times people say to me, can't you feel that? Can't you? Look, that hurts right there. What's wrong? Why does that hurt? Well, that's what has traditionally been called a trigger point. Another term is myofascial pain. There's a lot of, a lot of terms. A lot of misunderstanding. Trigger points are generally a secondary manifestation of a primary problem. Usually, there's nothing wrong where the trigger point is at. It comes from somewhere else. Uh, for example, we can map out a lot of the uh, cervical spine's referred pain. What do I mean by referred pain? Referred pain is where pain shows up. It's not necessarily where the origin begins. So, for example... If I have what we call a C2 cephalgia, or pain that goes over the top of the head, sometimes towards the eye, that actually can come from the uh, nerve right there at C2. So we number the spine, and it's three uh, general regions, and then there's the sacrum, there's the cervical, thoracic, lumbar, and in the cervical spine, there's seven segments. So... Uh, it's a little confusing with the anatomy and all because the nerve is over the top for seven, then it shoots down and at eight and T1. Well, irrelevant. Point is this. C2 cephalgia means that at C2 level, uh, it has a typical pattern where it shows up. C3, C4, C5, C6, C7. So even though people think they have thoracic problems, uh, the region below the cervical spine, because between their shoulder blades, they have this myofascial pain, this nondescript pain, this achy pain. They feel they have knots. Uh, that region, the levator scapular region, is actually probably coming from the lower segments in the cervical spine as a referred pain. Now, how do we know this? Well, we can typically map these out um, and have a diagnostic impression by putting local anesthetic under direct fluoroscopic guidance, direct x-ray guidance, right at that level, and the pain goes away. Well, then it kind of wears off when people say, well, that didn't work. Well, yeah, it worked. It's just that the medicine wore off, and now we have a lot of information where the pain might be coming from. So that leads us into what do we do therapeutically? Well, you think about it. 
Um, there's a few things you can do. You can be a little more invasive or you can be non-invasive. So, well, you could simply just kind of massage it. Well, talk about massage. That's another one of our questions. Generally, short-term effects. You could uh, go in and uh, inject local anesthetic, sometimes steroid. And if you have a positive response, a positive predictive experience, you can go in and do radiofrequency ablation. We've talked about that on the show. That's a little tiny needle with a hot tip, uh, typically 70 or 80 degrees centigrade. Uh, we can put that needle in there and get to that little nerve, a nuisance nerve. It doesn't really do much, and we can ablate it or knock it out for a while. But uh, somewhere in the middle, uh, we have a lot of other good options, too. Medication management, uh, physical therapy, chiropractic, and the like. So myofascial pain syndrome. It's a commonly misunderstood problem. It can be referred from somewhere else, and the things that help it are typically exercise, range of motion activity, sometimes trigger point injections. I'm not a big fan of those. TENS units and medication management. So uh, what I often get asked is, what is a trigger point injection? My doctor is giving me four or five injections in my back over where I hurt, and it's uncomfortable. Well, yeah, they are uncomfortable. Trigger point injections can be pretty uncomfortable, and generally speaking, they're usually uh, transient. Uh, they, They don't have good long-standing relief. Another problem that uh, a lot of physicians uh, don't appreciate is uh, steroid and local anesthetics can sometimes be what's called myotoxic. It can actually uh, damage the underlying muscle, and occasionally we see a little dip in the skin where somebody's gotten a trigger point with a bunch of steroid or something. Uh, Bupivacaine is uh, a type of local anesthetic. It's Uh, pretty notorious for also being aggravating uh, to the muscle tissue. And if you think about it, when you're injecting in the muscle, you're separating tissues, connective tissue and muscle, and that in itself can be a problem. So when we think about going in there and either rubbing on those trigger points or injecting them, and we aggravate them, are we just throwing gasoline on the fire? For example, it's a referred pain. Say it's from C5, and it manifests in the suprascapular or uh, area around your shoulders. And we're putting some medicine in there as at a point of secondary amplification of pain from a primary event that's actually from the neck. We're really just treating uh, from outside in, aren't we? And we know we like to treat from inside out. We like to go to the source of the pain. All right, there's, there's no good x-rays that we could take or anything like that unless you think that this is coming from the spine and uh, your doctor is pretty smart and you are too and you notice that there is a relationship between this pain that you have uh, in the shoulder region, neck region, kind of just down in the upper thoracic region. Uh, to the fact that you're you're not really moving your neck as well as you used to, or your low back, um, and you you notice these trigger points on the side of your thigh, and your low back hurts every once in a while, and you have some pain in the infragluteal or buttocks region. Um, 
Yeah, you may want to get some diagnostic x-rays just to just to make sure that you don't have more going on. I wouldn't run off and get an MRI um, something like that. It's a little drastic, but uh, simple x-rays can tell a lot. All right, so what's the outcome? Well, the outcome is directly related uh, to these uh, endless modifiable features in health profile that I always talk about. Um, are you getting range of motion and exercise? Are you really taking it to the street? How about uh, your weight? Every pound counts. Do you spoke? Well, I can tell you, uh, it is really hard to get a smoker to quit. But it gets easier and easier as a smoker sees consequences. And this is a consequence. Chronic spinal pain, uh, myofascial pain, trigger points and the like are definitely aggravated by smoking. I think you get it. So the outcome can be improved by what you do sometimes with medication, sometimes with TENS units or uh, electrical stimulating device, and sometimes with uh, trigger point therapy-like injections. Not a big fan on those injections, by the way. And forever, I emphasize, be careful with how much steroid you get in a year. You know, keep, keep a tabulation because your family doctor on one hand, may not know what the orthopedist is doing or the rheumatologist, and all of a sudden you've got a lot of steroid in you for the year. Something to think about. Okay, so it's a natural transition to fibromyalgia because a lot of folks with fibromyalgia have a lot of trigger points and muscle pain, this myofascial pain that has a poor explanation of what it really is. It's mostly a syndrome. Fibromyalgia is a syndrome. It's a group of problems. It's not one distinct problem. Irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, migraine headaches, muscle pain, and pelvic pain, the fibro five. So the question is, does fibromyalgia get better? Well, yes, of course it does. Um, most of these chronic pain conditions have a pathway to improvement. Almost all of them do. Uh, modifiable features and health profile. I have never gotten a fibromyalgia patient better that smoked. Okay? Take that to the bank. Get some exercise going. I'm going to talk briefly about that from a neurobiological standpoint. And we're, we're going into the weeds again. So fibromyalgia is... Once again, a peripheral manifestation of a central nervous system problem. Uh, I've said it for years. It, it comes from inside out as opposed to outside in. There's nothing wrong with your muscles out there and the like. What, what we do know is the brain responds to exercise. Fibromyalgia responds to exercise. Everybody for years has been saying, get exercise. But the fibro patients say, I hurt. I can't keep moving. I, it hurts to exercise. It hurts to go to physical therapy, et cetera, et cetera. All right, this is the deal. It doesn't have to be much. And I don't expect you to be running a marathon in two weeks. I expect you to be walking a little more and a little more. Remember those benchmarks. What are you doing now, 3, 6, 9, 12 months from now? So, yeah, how it's helping you is, from a neurobiological standpoint, this process of synaptogenesis in the brain, in the primitive part of the brain, that raises the BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, um, and that's that stuff that is suppressed when uh, you have chronic disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, uh, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, etc., and it's depressed in fibromyalgia. For years, people were saying, oh, serotonin this, uh, oh, endorphins and kephalins, what, whatever. 
Let's not let's not try to drill into fibromyalgia from one chemical or one diagnostic explosion of information. The fact of the matter is you got to change what you can change. And one thing you can change in fibromyalgia is you can raise the brain drive neurotrophic factor which creates uh, better crosstalk among uh, the central nervous system neurons or, or uh, more of the spines in the neurons, and the brain actually kind of wakes up. As a brain-derived neurotrophic factor rises, your brain wakes up and you feel better. So the brain is actually a little smaller in chronic disease states, including chronic pain. I and fibromyalgia would fall into that. And the more sedentary you are, it's, it's like it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse. The more active you are, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor rises, and so does your mood. Your mood rises as well. And in the primitive part of the brain, there's plenty of these uh, 5-HT receptors or serotonin receptors. So let's just say we can get you moving, maybe get you on an antidepressant, um, which does not mean you're crazy or you're super depressed, but there's a clinical reason to do it. Your serotonin rises a little, fine, fine, but so does your brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And when that goes up, a lot of things get better. What else makes it go up? Exercise. So there's a reason neurobiologically we say get out and get moving. you got to get moving. So uh, you heard it here first. Um, everybody says uh, this runner's high stuff uh, is from enkephalins, endorphins, natural opioids. I don't think so because you can give somebody uh, that's exercised uh, and they've got this kind of runner's high a reversal to opioids uh, called naloxone. Nothing happens. So it's it's counterintuitive to say that that mood uh, elevation isn't from something like an enkephalin and endorphin, and it may be to some extent. But what really happens is the brain-derived neurotrophic factor is rising. So runner's high is probably a lot to do with that. Neurobiologically, there's probably more than one explanation for runner's high or the the sense of well-being and the um, and just the good overall feeling you get from being active. Sedentary people don't have that, so get moving. All right. So fibromyalgia and fibromyalgic, what, are the, what is that? Fibromyalgic is a term I use that they have features of fibromyalgia, but they don't have the whole clinical spectrum. The American College of Rheumatology in 1990 came up with a number of criteria for fibromyalgia, and it's been modified since then. You can look it up, Google it. To me, it's kind of irrelevant. <laughs> if you're not moving and you hurt all over and you have widespread pain, it doesn't matter of all this criteria we have. We got to we got to uh, we got to treat you. So, all right, uh, you know, chiropractic is fine. Myofascial pain uh, maneuvers, deep tissue massage, and all that sort of thing. Do they help? I don't see it helping much. Um, so, you know, you think about it. We're talking about a peripheral manifestation of a central nervous system problem. We talked about that with trigger points. And if you take your fingers in there and you start digging in there with deep tissue massage or else you do just a plain massage, you're, you're irritating this trigger point, which could heighten the amplification of pain in the central nervous system as a feedback response. Uh, so I'm just saying that's a, that's a philosophical uh, perspective of mine. Um, 
And uh, a clinical thing I see is uh, this returned uh, patient from uh, deep tissue massage or myofascial release or whatever they want to call it, you know, the topic of physical therapy for the day. And uh, they felt great for 24 hours, but then they felt worse. And so they probably had some crosstalk back to the central nervous system. So fibromyalgia is a syndrome. It does get better. You look at the modifiable features in health profile. Um, Some believe the diet has something to do with it. Well, it may. I I don't know. Uh, I I have yet to see uh, a real good um, scientific representation of that, but it doesn't hurt to eat right and to have uh, a reasonable diet, not a radical diet. Um, And uh, a lot of people use the gabapentinoids. Um, uh, uh, Lyrica or pregabalin is actually labeled for fibromyalgia. Why? Working inside out as opposed to outside in. The problem with pregabalin that I have seen, and it's not everybody, but some people gain weight on that drug. Some people retain a little bit of fluid with Neurontin or Gabapentin. Um, so uh, if you're gaining weight, be aware of it. Make your uh, provider aware of it, your physician, uh, and have that conversation. Take a hard look at what you're eating and what you're doing. If you're not moving and uh, you're eating more, in other words, there's an imbalance in calorie input and output, you got to make a serious adjustment. Otherwise, it's... It's going to be uh, a worse and worse and worse experience through the year for you. And then uh, if you can't walk or you can't exercise because you hurt too much, talk to your provider about aquatic therapy or just go to something like the YMCA or Silver Sneakers or whatever you have in your community and get in a pool. People don't really lose weight swimming, but they they get range of motion. They feel better. Now, BDNF goes up. And uh, overall, I just think they – they feel more accomplished that they've gotten up and done something. Um, other medications, well, I think I have to discourage opioids. I use them with fibromyalgia. I'm not kidding myself to say that everybody's the same. To get some people moving, I use a short course of opioids. But I've also seen uh, folks get in a lot of trouble over time with opioids because the chronic nature of fibromyalgia is they hurt a lot. You hurt, you take an opioid. First, you're taking short-acting opioids. Now you've migrating and migrated into the long-acting opioids. Neither one is superior to the other, but the the bottom line is you're becoming opioid dependent, not an addict, opioid dependent. And uh, you don't want to get to a point where you're reliant on opioids. Uh, some people have recommended tramadol. Uh, that's fine. It's uh, effective only uh, uh, part of the time. I think I can see uh, a lot of folks saying it's not strong enough. Uh, it doesn't usually uh, cover widespread pain. Some people say I got to have a muscle relaxer. Well, yeah, muscle relaxers are good. Let's let's talk about baclofen. Baclofen is, works in the central nervous systems. Uh, there's GABA A and GABA B. Res- uh, 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 receptor uh, and in the central nervous system, and either it's benzodiazepine or baclofen, working on one or the other. But the thing about baclofen is um, it is a very potent drug, uh, and it shouldn't be discontinued abruptly. But it, it's one of the better ones, and it can help you sleep. Um, 
Another muscle relaxer is orphanadrine or Norflex. Um, I don't think it's all that effective, and I've tried a, a number of them. But I bring up orphanadrine because it is an NMDA receptor antagonist. That's N-methyl diaspartate receptor antagonist. It works in the central nervous system on pain-producing pathways. So it does have a little bit of synergy with the gabapentinoids, and it may work on some of that uh, neuropathic-type pain that you sometimes see with the fibromyalgic-type syndromes. Um, Okay, so um, there's a number of other different medications. They say, what about NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories? Well, we've talked about this on other podcasts. Those are those drugs are a, a true double-edged sword. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the Singh study uh, from the 90s uh, demonstrated that uh, more people died of uh, ibuprofen-related uh, problems than from HIV at the time. Uh, so they are not benign drugs. Cardiovascular issues, hypertension, uh, uh, stomach, liver, kidney issues – they're all a problem. So I would avoid long-term NSAIDs. Well, isn't it an anti-inflammatory? Don't I need an anti-inflammatory? It's not an anti-inflammatory like you think it's an anti-inflammatory. It's more at the molecular level. It's more uh, blocking prostaglandins. That can be a little helpful, particularly in the ner- central nervous system. But the risk-reward benefit probably is not in your favor. So um, to kind of summarize, fibromyalgia Uh, The more you do, the more you can do. Uh, Fibromyalgia, work on those modifiable features in your health profile. Fibromyalgia, be cautious with the medications you take. And probably the gabapentinoids are really good. Um, The um, other drugs that are sometimes labeled duloxetine um, uh, for fibromyalgia work in the central nervous system. Antidepressants, we talked about it probably by raising the BDNF. There we go again. So... um, Anyway, the drugs we choose, we choose carefully in fibromyalgia. We just get moving. All right, so what is Suboxone? That's the next question. Well, Suboxone's a really cool drug. It's controversial, but it's a really cool drug. It's a mu agonist uh, uh, receptor uh, uh, drug, and it, it sits partially on the mu agonist. It's... What it does is it, it gets gripped by the receptor that opioids sit at, that mu receptor, MU. And um, it sits there, but it, it doesn't just keep going up in effect the more you take. It, it, it stops and it starts plateauing out. Um, so you're taking the drug and you can kind of hit a ceiling with it and then it flattens out. But what it does is it's so sticky on that receptor that you can take opioids or other opioids, and just, even heroin, and it just doesn't do much. The other thing it does when it's sitting there is it diminishes cravings. And as you know, I, I do some addiction work. Um, this drug can take that craving away. It can take away the withdrawal uh, feelings of uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, lacrimation, etc. It can take away those feelings and get the user away from the bad stuff. It can be life-saving, and it is. Those that uh, shoot up heroin are shooting up some very potent stuff nowadays. 
the dealers are mixing heroin with fentanyl, which is 100 times more potent than morphine. And what people think is when they're injecting this stuff from the street, this um, adulterated stuff in the street, is this is the good stuff. My, my dealer is giving me the good stuff when, in fact, they're probably cutting the heroin, but they're putting in fentanyl, and these people are dying. So um, if you have somebody with Suboxone on board, you're, you're giving them the opportunity sometimes to live. You're, you're also giving them the opportunity to get their life in order. And I can tell you, uh, I was a bit of a skeptic with this drug. Why, why are we replacing a narcotic with something else like it? And isn't that just replacing one problem for another? And it is not. It is not. Suboxone is a good thing. It should not be stigmatized. It should be available. There should be a lot more doctors prescribing this drug. It's tightly regulated by the DEA, tightly. And you have to take a course. It's not much of a course uh, for a physician or uh, for a physician now to take. Provide, other providers like PAs and nurse practitioners in America can't. But I'm telling you, when this drug is uh, on board, uh, it can change somebody's life. Uh, case in point, I had a, a just a lovely little girl uh, in her 20s uh, arrive on my doorstep, early 20s, uh, an addict, big addict, um, named the drug. And opioids were the preference. Um, she was pregnant. You know, I get pregnancy tests on people. So the thing is, uh, I, can't, I can't abruptly... Uh, uh, put her in withdrawal, she'll have a miscarriage. I can't wean her and let her get into withdrawal accidentally because of her uh, unreliable drug-taking activities. She'll have a miscarriage. I mean, there's a whole bunch of risky things going on. But we got her through the pregnancy on Suboxone. We did it carefully, and a lovely baby was born, and a united family was established. And so it was a, an aha moment. It was fantastic. And, yeah, the babies are born with uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome. It has to, they have to be watched a little while, and special care must be given in the neonatal unit. Um, but it can be done. And as opposed to methadone, for methadone clinics, if they're on Suboxone, the neonate or the newborn, is uh, the stay is much shorter. So... You know, that's that's a sidebar on Suboxone. Suboxone, good. Now, the other name, the generic name for Suboxone is buprenorphine. Buprenorphine, buprenorphine is also in a patch form, trade name Butrans, um, that is uh, worn for pain control. Pain control. I don't want to mix these two up. Uh, you, you use... Suboxone or buprenorphine, and you define how you're using it. This patch is used for pain control, and it works really well. You put one patch on, and you change it every seven days. Pretty good. Pretty good. You don't have to worry about a bunch of pills. You don't have to worry about a bunch of acetaminophen or Tylenol from the uh, combined agents like hydrocodone, um, with acetaminophen or oxycodone with acetaminophen. You don't have to worry about that. It's a good, it, it's a good drug. But a completely different uh, treatment uh, philosophy and core of uh, progression. So, all right, are they going to be on Suboxone forever? I don't know. If uh, an addict can stay a non-addict and um, 
they're uh, like this uh, unified family I just uh, told you about, uh, so be it. Um, I'm not going to get all philosophical about when we start taking people off uh, Suboxone. That's a clinical decision and a uh, psychological, uh, uh, well-health decision with support uh, that you make uh, with your uh, clinician. Finally, I talk about psychological uh, support. Uh, If somebody is in a treatment program, an outpatient uh, drug treatment program for opioids or Uh, just leaving an inpatient. They need support. They can't be just thrown out to the street. They'll find their old old ways. Uh, And it's dangerous. Uh, What do we see? We see folks uh, semi-rehabilitated in the penal system. They're off their heroin. They get out of jail. They go right back to the street, go to their dealer, take the same dose that they had before, and they die. The reason they die is they have no tolerance. They have no tolerance. They were in jail. They lost all their tolerance, so they overdosed. We don't want that. So uh, the best things that you do with with folks that are an addict is you you drop the labels. It's not a moral failing, and you give them support at any level. If it's an executive that got hooked on – pain pills or whatever. They need psychological support. So uh, if somebody's being prescribed Suboxone, I sure hope they have that outlet and it's ongoing. All right. Tell me about muscle relaxers. I talked about it a little bit. Muscle relaxers are um, drugs that uh, are supposed to do what I just said. Uh, however, uh, there's different classes. Benzodiazepine, for years, people think that, you know, Valium is a great muscle relaxer. Actually, I think it's just uh, anti-anxiety that uh, Valium is best at. Um, and they quit uh, splinting. Uh, uh, there's others. Uh, we talked about uh, the GABA drugs. We talked about um, uh, some of the others. But muscle relaxers are just another pill. They probably don't improve function and quality of life as much as they're expected to. And there's also side effects. Let's take cyclobenzaprine or Flexoril. That's a trade name. Gain weight on it. What is, what is Flexoril? It'll be a whole podcast sometime. It's really a common drug, and it's felt to be non-habit forming. But if you listen to the folks at the DEA, there's more and more abuse of cyclobenzaprine or flexoril. It's also a close cousin to amitriptyline. They're kissing cousins, actually, or uh, Elevil. In fact, probably what happened one day is um, somebody tripped over flexoril and called it, oh, I'll just call this a muscle relaxer. And then they tripped over Elevil or amitriptyline. Uh, let's call this an antidepressant. So when you're taking amitriptyline, um, you're taking a very similar drug to Flexoril. So you'd expect many of the same uh, side effects and uses of the drug. In fact, that's true. Uh, Amitriptyline and Flexoril cause you you to be pretty sleepy. So people sleep with them. Uh, And it improves uh, restorative sleep capacity. Uh, Elevil. Uh, or amitriptyline improves mood to some degree. There's a small therapeutic window there, but it does. Um, dry mouth, dry eyes, constipation, that sort of thing. Side effects. Somewhat an older class of drugs, uh, and 
they um, are just so, so in effectiveness. The risk-reward benefit's probably not as good as you'd think. Okay, I'm allergic to all these opioids. I can't take them because I itch. Am I really allergic to opioids? Well, I don't know. It's rare. I see it, I suppose. But usually when you're itching after taking an opioid, it's because you're having a histamine release. Stand out in a, in a field and you've got hay fever and you're itching and your eyes are watering, your throat feels funny, uh, that's, that's histamine. So you run off and you take an antihistamine. You take a Benadryl, right, diphenhydramine. You take something like that, okay, I'm better. Um, so it's probably a histamine release. You're probably not necessarily allergic, and I always put a caution on that. Always put a caution on that. I am not going to judge somebody's allergies by uh, recklessly prescribing when I think it's a side effect. This requires judgment, skill, and experience. So if you need the drug, the risk-reward benefit is in the patient's favor. Judiciously, you can take uh, a uh, testos or something like that or take the drug with caution. Um, I rarely, rarely, rarely see a problem with opioids, except I can't take opioids. I'm always constipated. Yeah, and that, that's an issue. We used to do the Miralaxes, you know, push the motion. We used to do all sorts of things, uh, stool softeners, whatever. Um, but now, thank God, we finally got some great drugs that helped with opioid-induced constipation. And I'm going to talk more about that in a later podcast. Um, uh, there's a couple of uh, brand names that I use, and um, they're specific uh, to constipation and are specific to uh, unique mechanisms that uh, hopefully will make constipation with opioids a thing in the past. So, all right. I guess that's about it. I've talked too much today, and uh, we'll do another uh, QA soon, and um, I'll see you soon.